Now that Peggy and I are uh, empty nesters, I find that I like little kids a lot more. <laughs> it's easier, you know, um, when we were in the throes of it, uh, you'd come home after a long day and think, well, time to go back to work, just my second job. Um, now I come home and I rejoice with the fact that they're gone. I had an interesting experience this week. I thought I would start with it and share it with you. I think a lot of you can relate to it, perhaps. I took our golden retriever, Avery, down to the park to play, and a lot of times that gives me a little more extra time to, uh, as she sniffs and does what dogs do, I can look at nature, I can take a, a walk through the woods, I can look at the sky, I can watch the birds and most often it really does take me into a time in my soul where I begin to want to worship the Lord and sometimes uh, especially if there's no one around and I know that they're not around I'll maybe even uh, hum or sing a song to the Lord and it's not pretty that's why I do it where no one's around but I think it is beautiful to the Lord. I found that on this particular day, and maybe you can relate to this, my heart was cold towards the Lord. And as I tried to cultivate my heart and worship, it just felt empty and cold. And I, I pushed through because I believe that that's what I should do, and I sang but I felt the whole time like maybe my heart wasn't in it. And I came back to the house and Peggy was there. So I said, hey, let me tell you this experience I just had and uh, I'd like to talk to someone else about it. And so I told her how I felt my heart was cold. And one of the things that we did is we said, well, let's, what are some things that we're grateful for? And so we began to talk about different things that we were grateful for and I noticed as we did that my heart also turned towards the word of God and then before long I noticed I wanted to pray and so I said let's pray and the process of breaking through my cold heart and soul I noticed once again was through consciously pushing through and intentionally saying, I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to worship. I'm going to engage you, Lord, in your word. And the reason I say that is I know that that experience is not unusual to me. I know that that experience, you know, even in our hymns that we sing, our heart wanders from God. And it's just the part of the fallen condition of man that we wander away from our Lord and what I have to do because what my fallen condition does is it focuses on all the things that are hard that are that I don't like and then sometimes if I'm really honest I find myself begin to question why is God doing it that way 
Why does it have to be like this? And we have to intentionally work to fight and to fight for our joy. And as we get to day seven in our text today, to fight for our rest in Christ. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Before we go any further, though, I'm always keenly aware that without the Holy Spirit of God, whom I believe exists in the third person of the Trinity, nothing supernatural is going to happen over these next few moments as we engage over God's Word. And so with me, would you pray? Let's ask God to be here together. Father, as I hold up your Word, I pray that you would illuminate it to our souls, to our minds, to our hearts, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We're trusting that something very miraculous and supernatural happens here, and that is that you speak to us through your word, that this is not a normal meeting like any other meeting we have during the week, but that you are here in a special way with your people to teach us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked, and I promise you, this will be our last week in Genesis 1. If you've been here for all three of the sermons, you're thinking, how many weeks is he going to stay in Genesis 1? Well, Genesis 1 has a whole lot to it. So, but this is our last week in Genesis 1. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that I said over the last 200 years, what is mentioned here in Genesis 1 has been highly contested. Almost every word in Genesis 1 has been fought over and by different theologians, be it liberal or conservative. And I told you that there are essentially four different ways to view what we see happening here in Genesis 1. You may remember I even asked Coleman, I don't see Coleman now, but is he back there? I asked Coleman last week right after the sermon, I said, what are one of the four theories that I brought up? And he said, uh, the gap theory. And I said, yes, that's great, Coleman. And then I said, you got another one? He said, I got nothing. <laughs> so the four were the gap theory, the day-age theory, the framework theory, and then a literal six days. Now, you can go back and either watch that video or listen to the audio or study those, those things yourself. We're going to move forward today. We're not going to talk about how God did it because that was maybe what are the ways that God could have done this. That at the very beginning, it says God created. And here's the amazing thing is when God created, he created out of nothing. He spoke and the world came into existence. It's fascinating to speak and bring a, a universe into existence. But today we're going to look at how God has worked in these different days, these six days of creation, and then what does that seventh day of creation mean? It says that God rested. Was God tired? Does God ever get tired? Is that why he had to rest? So we'll look at all of that. Um, but it is interesting that almost every commentary I read 
And every textual scholar of Genesis 1 that I have read makes the, the, the comment that in Genesis 1, what you see is a lot of repetition. And if you just read it, you know, it was evening and then it was morning and then it was good. And you see these different things that are repetitious. Well, one reason for that repetition is that they did not have what you have and what I have, which is the written word. And so repetition could help them remember the Hebrew people. It could help them remember what was being read to them because they didn't even have their own reading of it. They had it read to them. And so that's one reason. Another is interesting, and uh, Jen Wilkins is a lady that uh, our women are studying through her study, and she has noted, and I thought it was a worthy of note, it's noteworthy, is that if you went through Genesis 1 and you circled every time you see the word God or a reference to God, in that first chapter you'll see 35 different references to God. So the point there is, in Genesis 1, God is starting out by saying, listen, this is about me. It is God-centric. When we read the Word of God, sometimes we read it man-centric. But Moses is clearly saying, this is mostly about God. Now, it's going to include creation, and it's going to include man, but this is mostly about God. So, let's look back at your, uh, at your Bibles. I'm going to read out of the NIV, um, which is also in the pew, and this is how it reads that first and second verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Those are two key words. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, formless and empty. What God is going to do in these six days is He is going to bring form and He's going to bring fullness. And we're going to see that in these six days. He's going to bring form and He's going to bring fullness. But then also it says here in our text that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. One of the things, Peggy knows this about me, is if I see a bird of prey, a hawk, especially if I was to see something like an eagle, I'll stop everything. I just want to stand there and watch this bird. To me, they're just fascinating creatures. They're massive, and uh, I'm just amazed by them. But in Deuteronomy 32.11 is the only other reference that is used in the same context of this spirit hovering and what it's saying in Deuteronomy 32 is it's like an eagle hovering over its young to protect and to nurture it so you get this visual image that the Holy Spirit of God is hovering over the deep almost in a sense like an eagle to nurture and to protect and he is anxiously awaiting the Spirit of God anxiously awaiting the word from the Father to breathe life into creation. And so you see this 
image there. Now, let's look at day one. It says God creates light. But if you don't read the text carefully, you won't realize that he hasn't created the sun, the moon, or the stars yet. God gives light, but he doesn't have the illuminaries that he would normally use to create light, sun, moon, and stars. Read along with me there in Genesis 1, 3 through 5. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. My question is, what was the light that God created here? If you don't have a sun, and if you don't have moon, and you don't have stars, what was this light? Turn with me to Revelation 21, 23. So the back of your Bible. We're going from the front to the back. Revelation 21, 23. Now, you may not know this, so I'll give you a little bit of context. John, the apostle who Jesus loved, has been taken for a special revelation. And in this revelation, he's seeing things in heaven as they will be. And he, in this text, is saying something about the future. And this is what he says in Revelations 21, 23. And the city, he's talking about the heavenly city, the city that one day, if you know the Lord, you will be at. He says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? No need for the sun, because the glory of God will shine in this place. Now, we can't know for sure if that's the light that it's talking about over here in Genesis, but I can at least say God can create light without the sun or the moon or the stars. After all, we are talking about God, are we not? So, also in this text, you'll notice it's the first time that it says it was good. In Genesis 3 there, he says, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. This, word, this phrasing, it was good, appears seven times in Genesis 1. The number seven is often emphatic in Hebrew, and it symbolizes completion, fullness, and so seven different times in the creation account, God says it was good. Seven different times. And then in the very last one when he creates man and all of creation has been created, he goes a step further and he says, it is very good. 
It is very good. So then the question, what is meant by good? What does that mean? And in the original languages, the idea is it is perfect. It is complete. So when God says it is good, he's saying it's perfect. It's complete. Now, here's the thing. Only God has ever had that experience to create something. You may be an artist or you may know someone that's an artist or you have uh, an engineer and you create something. For me, as a pastor, every week, I mean, honestly, now, when Sunday's over, my mind immediately starts thinking about what's the next text. And all during the week, I'm reading, I'm doing observation, interpretation, application, I'm picking up commentaries, I'm trying to understand what the next sermon needs to be and what God is saying through the text. And here's the thing. I never feel done. I had a meeting this morning at 9.30. Somebody came in and they said, so are you printing out the sermon? And the truth of the matter was that's the fourth time I printed it out because I kept making adjustments. And uh, I never feel complete. God, when he finished creating, he said, it is good. It is complete. It is perfect. It is done. And then he says, there was evening and then morning the first day. Now, if you're in the women's study, you heard Jen Wilkins say this, but most of you aren't in the women's study probably. That is backwards. It was evening and then morning the first day. If I were saying it, I would say it this way. It was morning and then evening the first day. But Jewish culture works the other way. It's evening and then morning, and that's how they count days. And so Moses is saying to the Hebrews exactly how their culture would say it. It was evening and morning the first day. Does, it makes perfect sense to them, but it gets lost in translation to us here in modern-day America. Now, look at day two. He creates the expanse. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I use that word all the time. Yeah, it's the expanse, you know. It's just the expanse. How about, have you seen the expanse lately? I was looking out today, and I saw the expanse. No, we don't use that word much. Another way to think about that word would be atmosphere. So let's look at Genesis 1, 6 through 8. It says, And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And so if you just substitute that word expanse for atmosphere, it kind of makes a lot more sense. God created this atmosphere that has a sky and it has a sea. <clears throat> but the bigger thing here is, again, God speaks and the cosmos responds. It's astonishing. 
It's astonishing. God giving form to the world. Day three. Day three is the earth and vegetation. If we look at Genesis 1, 9 through 13, this is how it reads. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters they were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then further it says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is seed, each according to its own kind. That's a key phrase. Why is that a key phrase? I'll tell you in just a minute. On the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to their own kind. And God saw it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. The reason I emphasize it is because the Scripture does right here in this text three times and later multiple other times. Each according to its own kind. What is Moses trying to say? What are the scriptures trying to say? I think at least one thing it is saying is this. Rose bushes don't produce apples. I think that's, we know that. Um, fish don't produce bears. No, they produce according to their own kind. Humans don't give birth to potatoes. That's ridiculous. Or alligators, you know. I know a couple of times I went to the hospital to see a newborn baby, and he looked like an alligator. It wasn't, it wasn't Bria's. It wasn't Bria's. <laughs> it's kind of like, put him back. He's not finished. Um, but the idea that each according to its own kind must say something about evolution creation. They're coming according to their own kind. Day four. He gives form to light and the stars. Look at Genesis 1, 14 through 19. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Again, here I borrow, because I thought uh, Jen Wilkins does a great job with this, and uh, she was saying in her study, you know, why doesn't Moses just say in this text that we just read, the sun and the moon? He says, there are two great lights. Well, all of us, are not, we know, well, one great light's the sun, and one great light's the moon. So why not just come forward with it, Moses, and just say it 
Um, why, why be so cryptic about it? Well, the Egyptians worshipped the sun and moon gods. Moses was declaring that the true God was the creator of even the sun and the moon. And he, and he alone, was worthy of our worship. And so Moses is not going to lean in to the sun and the moon gods. He's going to back up from that and make his emphasis the true God, not the sun and the moon god. And so I uh, recently... Um, took Joel Chapman's advice and went to his barber because he's cheaper than my barber. And I noticed the very first time I walked in, there is on the, uh, on the ground here some sort of idol. And then in front of the idol, the last time I was there was a piece of bread and some fresh grapes and something else. I just know I was hungry and I really wanted to go over there and just go, he ain't eating. Could I have that? You know, and uh, of course I know I, I would have totally offended them, so I didn't touch it. Um, but it reminded me that even in our culture today, maybe we don't worship the sun and the moon, but there is worship, there is idol worship, and it was very evident even right there at the barber shop. And so people are still doing this. Moses is declaring in Genesis to the Hebrew people, your hope, your only hope is in Yahweh, the true God. Not in the stars and the moons, none of that, but in God and him alone. He populated the heavens with the sun and moon and he gave it fullness. Day five, I'm not going to read day five for time's sake. God gives fullness by populating the seas and expanse with the birds and the fish, which is what Annie was trying to tell me when she walked out to the nursery. She was showing me the fish on her sippy cup. Day six, fullness through land animals and humans. Read along with me in Genesis 1, 24 through 26. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. You see this, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. I think there's something there, guys. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And he transitions right here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all creeping things that creep on the earth. So in day six, the pattern shifts from let there be. If you go back and look at all the other days, it says let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. But when you get to day six, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. 
Moses is making a point. He's making a transition. This is to be the crown jewel of creation. Man, man and woman, created in God's image. And so, then the question for me is, who is the us in this text? Look, look at your Bible there. It says uh, in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So he says, us and our. Most everyone agrees that this is the, one of the earliest references to the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. So you already have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And now, in this verse, you have the idea of us making man in our image. The beginning, and I said that Genesis has in seed form all the major doctrines throughout the Scripture. It's just that as God progressively reveals through the rest of the 65 books, we learn more and more and more and more about the Trinity. But right here in the very beginning, we see the Trinity. Now, others have uh, said that perhaps God here is talking about the heavenly beings, that angels have already been created. But in my uh, understanding of it, reading the text, reading the language of the text, I think it's the Trinity. I don't think it's about other heavenly beings. However, I could be wrong. So, now, the question is, you know, what does he mean by have dominion over these things? Is this dominate? Is that, the, is that a good translation? Translation is that we should dominate over the other things that he's created. And I think the idea that the scriptures are putting forward is that man should be a good steward over the things that God has given, that we should steward them well. And then look with me uh, finally at Genesis 1, 27 through 29. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice he says it. He says the same thing three different ways. This is often called a triad. And he says, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. The big question that I have on this text is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? All believers, or excuse me, all humans are made in the image of God. Of God. To me, this is one of the strongest, strongest arguments that you could make for when we see racism in our culture. 
We are all made in the image of God. There isn't really a speck of difference between us. And because we're made in the image of God, we innately should be given dignity as his creation. And so whether you come from somewhere in the Middle East or somewhere down in Africa or somewhere in Europe, it doesn't matter. We are all made in the image of God. And because of that alone, we should defer to one another and lift up one another and be an encouragement to one another. And you know the other thing is, I've said this before, but God absolutely loves diversity or he would have never created it. He did not create people going, you know, these white people, they're really special. And then these darker people, they're not so special. Could you imagine? What kind of God would that be? And so God is not colorblind. He loves diversity. And he created it. And I believe that we learn things from one another, especially those that aren't like us, about our creator that we could never learn if we were just a big white church or even an all-black church. We need each other to be able to experience all that there is in the kingdom and that God would have us to understand about him because we reflect him we are made in the image of God unbelievable no other creature that was made is made in the image of God only us only us and notice in uh, in this account when we're talking about being made in the image of God John Curid, one of the commentators that I look to, he says, it's not just a matter of character, though I think it is about character. God says, you be holy as I am holy. That's a character thing. I need to reflect Christ to a lost world and to my wife and to my children, and you do too. But he says it's also about activity and function. And what he means is this. In Genesis 1, we see that man is to imitate God in two basic ways. First, in Genesis 1 through 10, God is shown subduing the chaos and ruling over it. And then he's bringing in order. So he's subduing and he's ordering activity and function. He does this through naming the creation that he's just Created In Genesis 2, we see man subduing and, and ruling. And he's uh, cultivating the garden. He's naming the animals. And so, at least in part, what it means to be made in the image of God is that our character should reflect his character. We should be holy as he's holy. But also, our activity and our functions should reflect the character of God. Ultimately, many have called this the cultural mandate. 
the cultural mandate. So in conclusion of Genesis 128, humanity is commissioned to reproduce God's own activity in creation, that is to subdue and fill the earth. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about women, you're supposed to have babies and fill the earth. I'm saying we are to subdue and fill the earth even spiritually, even spiritually. And so <clears throat> Malachi 6.8 says this. It's a great memory verse. Matter of fact, Carrie asked me, what's another memory verse for our bulletin? She's not in here, is she? Carrie, it's Malachi 6.8 if you listen to the sermon. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Last, last thing I'm going to say is day seven. Day seven is an interesting day because on the other six days, there was three days of bringing form out of emptiness and then three days of bringing fullness. And then on day seven, it's a day of rest. And I you know, can't help but ask the question, does God get tired? Well, the scriptures clearly say God is never tired. God doesn't take a nap. God doesn't need a nap. I, on the other hand, will probably take a nap after this. I need a nap. I'm not God. <laughs> Honestly, you never get me like that, but you got me right there. Uh, the Sabbath was instituted by God, we see it in Genesis 2, 2 through 3. God gave the Sabbath to Israel as a, as a sign of his covenant to them. It's a weekly reminder that they need him to be sanctified, that they can't do it on their own. No one, no one, no one is saved on their own merit. It is by the grace of God alone. And so we work and we tarry and we move and we, and especially in our society, it's crazy. It's like, it's like we're on a treadmill and we're just running and we're running and we're running and we push the button and we go faster on our treadmill and we're grinding it out and we feel like maybe we're getting somewhere, but then we realize I'm on a stupid treadmill. I can't be getting anywhere. And that's the way we live our lives. What we need, what we need is the Lord's day. A time to get off the treadmill and walk over to the window and look out and see God's creation and be reminded, you know, God gives to those he loves even in their sleep. All my running, thinking that I'm keeping it all together is for naught if God is not with me and I am not with him. And unless you get off the treadmill of life, 
And it is the gift of the Lord's day to come off that treadmill, to spend time worshiping Him, to spend time focusing on Him. Go take a walk in nature. Go sit by the Chattahoochee River. That's what I do. And I feel like the river moves slow and my soul just slows down at that river's pace. And it just ministers to me. Get off the treadmill. Take advantage of the Lord's day. Come to worship. Be with God's people. Slow down. Be in His Word. Be in prayer. And then finally, you'll notice on the seventh day, it does not say, then there was evening and then there was morning. You know why I believe it doesn't say that? It's because for the believer, your final rest in Hebrews 4 will be with him. And we will rest in our soul in a way that we can only fathom and dream about in this life let's pray